Well, it is a joy to be back among you. Uh, I was thinking the first time I preached to this congregation was actually in 2005. Uh, so uh, perhaps some uh, were not here then, many were not. Uh, but uh, needless to say, it means I'm an old man. Right? Well, I would ask you to open your, your Bibles, please, to the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, Ephesians and the third chapter. And as you're turning there, uh, let me fulfill an important responsibility, and that is to bring you greetings from your sister church there in uh, Bluefield, West Virginia, and in particular, uh, my fellow elder, uh, Scott Holland, has had the joy of uh, being with you, brethren. I'm not sure how long ago that was now, but in, in any event, uh, he'll, he asked me to spend special greetings from him. We are very grateful to God for our fellowship with you, dear brethren. Well, now, I would begin with this question, uh, rhetorical. Uh, How important is church to you? Well, gauging from what you're about, I I would think it's clear enough. It's very important. Important enough to want and to endeavor to be a biblical church, Christ's church, where he rules. Not just showing up, not playing church, and not just any kind of church, but rather a biblical church, Christ's church, uh, where all of life is lived under the word of God to the glory of God, and that includes all of church life. I believe I have an accurate read of you and your esteem of the church. Well, that which I would wish to consider this morning, I hope, will uh, be a continued encouragement to that and an encouragement in days to come as we would consider the centrality of the church in the purpose of God. That is, its important place. Uh, If you please, it has... uh, center stage, you know, like a play. You know, you've got different characters, uh, some that are just passing through, maybe a few, you know, trees or the like on the stage and so forth, and and just props, just the backdrop. Well, that is not the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, It it has that very central, that pivotal position in God's eternal purpose. Now, we might think in terms of the centrality of the church and the propagation of the gospel throughout uh, the age throughout this world. And so it is how the church is described as that uh, a pillar and ground of the truth. That is to say, uh, holding up and holding forth uh, that glorious truth of the gospel. And that, again, throughout the world, that great commission. You know, or we might think of the centrality of the church by way of its place in the lives of God's people. That is for our edification, a means of grace to us. And it is that, but really, that is not the centrality of the church in the purpose of God. Uh, I could say these things really are but part of that. Uh, Notice what Paul says in Ephesians and uh, chapter 3. Let's take up our reading at verse 8. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, uh, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, though Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, clearly he's not thinking only of that one congregation. He's talking uh, about the church universal. That is to say, all of God's true people uh, everywhere, all who are on earth, and even those with whom we have, as we sang earlier, that mystic 
sweet communion uh, the spirits of just men made perfect. Now, much like later in this letter when he talks about Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And ultimately, it's that church that he presents to himself as that bride. Well, he's not talking just about that local congregation. He's talking about, again, all of his people uh, everywhere, all true believers. But in writing as he did, both in Ephesians 5 and here in Ephesians 3, about the church, church universal, it's not without relevance to that specific church in Ephesus, obviously. It's not like, well, this is some entity with which you have no relationship. or so. No, he's writing this as something very relevant, very pertinent to them in their life together, and not just them, but also to us in Bluefield, to you here in Portland. Now, let me just begin by saying a word about the context. Paul is writing here of his ministry, especially as the apostle to the Gentiles in this epistle in particular, he emphasizes that the gospel had come to non-Jews. In fact, we see that in the opening verse that I read, verse 8. Now, he himself talks about preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles. He, in chapter 2, has already made reference to conversions, widespread. Those who, well, they were not of uh, circumcision according to the flesh, in fact, in their native state, they had been without Christ, without God in this world, without hope, strangers to the covenants of the promise and the like. But those who were uh, far off had now been brought near through Christ. The Lord had saved them. He goes on in chapter 2 to talk about how the Lord in his uh, work has united together a Jew and Gentile believers on Christ to make one new humanity. And so that's very much the context here uh, that he's been uh, talking about. Now, it, it's not that uh, it was unheard of in the Old Testament that Christ would come for Gentiles, that the Messiah would come to save Gentiles. I, I think of Isaiah 49, when uh, the Father uh, speaking to the Son is too small of a thing for you to simply raise up uh, those of the, of the tribes of Jacob. Uh, I will make you a light to the Gentiles and my salvation to the end of the earth. Well, clearly that's the prophecy of Christ. However, when Paul is here referring us to that mystery that was hidden in God, he's not talking about that Gentiles would hear the gospel, but he's saying just how thoroughly those Gentiles, as Gentiles, would be joined to the Jews. That's the mystery part that's revealed now, as he says in verse 6 of this chapter, uh, by the uh, Holy Spirit. Uh, to, through the apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body, partakers of this promise. So in other words, the Gentiles, Jews, should be truly knit together as one people, that one new humanity uh, to which Paul has referred there. But now, in so writing about what uh, God has done, what God purposed uh, by way of Jew, Gentile, being uh, that one new humanity, etc., he tells us a great deal uh, about the church and about the purpose, God's purpose with the church in this world. So that's where we're heading. Firstly, as you can see from the wording of verse 11 here, we're informed that God has an eternal purpose. That is a plan or design that is eternal. It predates creation, as he says here in verse 9, how it was hidden from the beginning uh, in God, uh, but then also it's something that will outlast this present age. And so in verse 21, he talks about God's glory in the church by Christ to all generations forever and ever. So again, it's eternal purpose, predates time, outlasts this present order of things. And in chapter one of this letter, he's already in, emphasized that this plan and all of its parts are according to the good pleasure of God's will, or one nine of chapter one, the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. And therefore, in verse 11 of chapter one, he talks about how God now works all things according to the pleasure of his will. So we've got this plan that predates time, that outlasts this creation, eternal purpose. And in that, God himself not only purposed, but now works all things according to his own good pleasure, his own will. And Paul has also underscored in chapter 1 that that includes having a people. You're all familiar with Ephesians 1, 4, how uh, uh, you're chosen in him before the foundation 
of the world. And he goes on to speak then of how God predestined us to the adoption of sons in verse 5, or to uh, predestined us to an inheritance in verse 11. Here in chapter 2, he even goes, in, uh, sorry, earlier in chapter 2, he's even talking about good works that God has prepared beforehand. So uh, here's the eternal purpose, which has to do with God having a people for himself. And in time, sending his only begotten son into this world to redeem and to rescue that people and to make them his own. That was his purpose. We were, as Romans 8.28, called according to that purpose. All according to that plan that was not determined by men, nor is it dependent upon man. It is God's eternal purpose. Now, even in saying that, I feel in good company here, but you know, that teaching uh, has not infrequently been disliked. Isn't that right? You know, not wanting to hear about God having some plan that predates time and God electing certain sinners and so And yet, brethren, it's important. It's very important that this should be in our thinking. Is God truly God? Is he ruler over all and always in control? Is he all-wise? Is he omniscient? Is he omnipotent? Or is he somehow subject to man and man's sin? Or so that men and the devil can thwart God's design uh, as they wish? Well, obviously, he is God. He is always God. And Scripture makes it clear that God, as Ephesians 1.11 says, works all things according to the counsel of his will, and that will stands. Remember in Job chapter 42, I know that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Or even Nebuchadnezzar, a Gentile, there in Daniel chapter 4, it was clear to him that God rules over the hosts of heaven, over the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand. Or the psalmist repeatedly talks about God doing that which is pleasing in his sight. Or Psalm 33, the counsel of the nations, well, he brings to naught, but the counsel of the Lord, uh, he will do all his good pleasure, the thoughts of his heart forever stand. So God has a plan and nothing happens outside the framework of that eternal purpose. Again, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Or perhaps you're familiar with the wording, I'm sure you are, in Romans 11.36. Of him, through him, and to him are all things. What does that mean? Of him, that is, all things are rooted in his eternal decree. Through him, all things are now worked out in his providence according to that decree. And to him, all things ultimately redound to God's glory. So there's no mere coincidence. However, uh, that is disliked by some. How terrible if there was no plan, if everything was just helter-skelter, that God was not in control. You know, we all suck sweetness from that flower, Romans eight twenty eight, right? And we know all things work together for good. Those are, but you know, if God wasn't sovereign, if God was, uh, that verse would be meaningless. Well, how do we know it's going to work? Because you know, He could let something sit through the. No, obviously. What comfort to know that our well-being, that our future, is not in the hands of mere people, not even ourselves, but rather that an all-wise, kind God who's not capricious has a plan and purpose which includes all things, and indeed all things uh, are determined, that are determined will most certainly come to pass. And it is an extensive providence, pervasive. Remember how the Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, not even a bird falls to the ground apart from your Father's will. Rather than, not coincidence, not chance, but rather God working all things according to the counsel of his will, according to his eternal purpose. Well, that's what Paul is referring to here then in Ephesians chapter 3. And also, he refers to that purpose by way of a second observation. That eternal purpose was planned and executed, he says, in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
some translations have it, it was accomplished in Christ. The Greek word could mean it was purposed in Christ, or it could mean it was fulfilled in Christ. Either way, both are true. We don't need to sort it out beyond that. But the fact is, this great eternal purpose of God especially has reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, that in and through him was this purpose made, and it is carried out. And that underscores again that the plan involves God having a people, or God saving sinners. You're familiar with 1 Timothy 1.15, how Christ Jesus came into the world with sinners to save, or 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, how he was foreordained uh, before the foundation of the world, that is to be that one who would come to rescue sinners like us from our sins, those who were chosen before time began. Well, now, Scripture makes it clear that every facet of our salvation, uh, it's all in Christ. In fact, in this very letter, Ephesians, remember how Paul begins in chapter 1 with this, actually, it's one long sentence in the original, like verses 1 through, or 3 through 14, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. And then he goes on to give a few of those things, like you were chosen in him before the foundation, or you were predestined to adoption by Jesus Christ. And he goes all the way down through. He keeps saying it's in him. It's by him. It's all these spiritual blessings that are in and through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when it says here, he has this... uh, eternal purpose it accomplished in Christ, it it just underscores that this great salvation, it was given us in Christ before time began, when we were saved, 2 Timothy 1.9, not according to our works, but according to his purpose and grace in Christ Jesus. So, first observation, God has eternal purpose. Second observation, it was purposed and is accomplished in and by Jesus Christ, especially with reference to the salvation of sinners. But thirdly, in verse 10, Paul speaks of a primary design of this eternal purpose. It clearly has to do with the display of God's glory, but he mentions one facet of God's glory or one perfection of God in particular. Notice again, verse 10, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. That his wisdom might be made known, might be manifest, is here called manifold wisdom, meaning it's a very multifaceted wisdom. I believe this is the word used in the Septuagint, that Greek translation of the Old Testament, of uh, uh, Joseph's coat of many colors, right? Variegated, right? Well, that's the idea. Here's the wisdom of God and just how manifest, how manifold, how variegated that great wisdom is. And that's displayed especially, that was at the heart of this eternal purpose, uh, underscoring its breadth, its depth, uh, its greatness, even as Paul had written to the Romans in Romans 11.33, when he said, Oh, the depths of the riches, uh, both of the no- wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable uh, are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Here's this great and glorious wisdom that God has displayed in and by the church, he says. Now, if I might just park on that for, for a moment or two, because really every facet of your salvation, Christian, it displays the wisdom of God. For instance, God is merciful. We understand that. God is love. But God is just and God is holy. And all sin, all sin is against a just and holy God. And therefore, all sin must be punished because God is just. He can't just sweep it under the carpet. Ah, well, bygones are bygones. Right? We understand that. Oh, but here's the, can I call it the dilemma? How can a just God be merciful to sinners who deserve judgment, who deserve his wrath, damnation? How can this be? Well, here's the wisdom of God displayed. By providing a perfect substitute, 
one who would come as true man, one of us, yet without sin, who then would suffer and die and exhaust the wrath of God in the place of all who would put their faith in him. So that God could be, as Paul says in Romans 3, both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. Or Paul says in Romans 4, how God justifies the ungodly. He declares as righteous the ungodly. How can that be? Ah, it's because God in his wisdom provided that perfect substitute who not only took our wrath, but again, his perfect righteousness imputed to all those who trust in him. There's the manifold wisdom of God displayed in the satisfaction of justice at the same time of God then being merciful to sinners. But that's not the only way that we see justice displayed, or wisdom rather displayed, in our salvation. I mean, here, the wisdom of God is seen in that he brought life out of death. He brought blessing out of curse, what sin did. Here's Christ's death for sinners bearing that and God granting rich blessing. His wisdom is seen in the way that salvation at one and the same time humbles man that no flesh should glory in his presence and yet exalts man that we should be glorified together with Christ. You ever think about that? Our salvation. Oh, what are we to boast in? No flesh glorying in his sight, right? A salvation in God's wisdom that humbles us at the same time exalts us joint heirs with Christ. Or we can see the same thing in uh, Romans 11. What Paul is there dealing with is here's the wisdom of God. You've got these Gentiles, sorry, these Jews, and they've, they've rejected Christ. They've rejected the Messiah. They've rejected the gospel. And therefore, well, the gospel goes to Gentiles, provokes them to jealousy. And it, then God shows that all are in need of mercy. All are sinners and lost. Jew, Gentile, that he might, as Paul says in Romans 7, have mercy on all. And it's in that connection, he says, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom of God, and his ways past finding out, and so forth. Here, this great work of showing all are lost and need a Savior, and at the same time, providing that Savior. That's the display of the wisdom of God. Or think of the kind of Savior that was provided. Perhaps you're familiar with Job's words in Job chapter 9. And here he's, oh, that there was an umpire, that there was a mediator, someone who could lay his hands on his boat. That is to say, one who could identify with me as a man, but one who could identify with a perfect God. Job's kind of bemoaning the fact he didn't have the grasp that we do, the light that we have. But that's exactly the kind of mediator that God has provided. One who is indeed true God, and yet one who became one of us, all that man is except sin, who indeed can lay his hands on us both, that one mediator between God and man, the man, the man, Christ Jesus. That's the wisdom of God providing such a mediator. And then we can talk about that great salvation that God has given you, dear Christian, the working of the Holy Spirit, not from the outside, but rather from within, indwelling you. Or then you've got the various very well-suited means of grace. The word preached, the fellowship of the saints, the prayers of the saints, and church life as a whole, and all that God does. Well, what about this? What about the wisdom displayed in providence in bringing that Savior into this world? You're familiar with the history of Israel, well, even before their history, when you think in terms of that promise to Abraham that through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. You think of all the trials and all that Abraham went through. Well, all of that was to bring the Messiah through his line. And then, of course, we come to the Jews. You come to uh, that uh, time that was foretold, uh, their bondage in Exodus, and then the deliverance out of that, and what God did in establishing them as a nation, and putting them in this land. All those providences. What was that all about? Well, it was also as to keep God's word. That is, through Abraham's seed, one would come. And you go all through the history of Israel, notwithstanding their uh, sins, their wickedness and judgments. Even, mind you, the Babylonian captivity. The Babylonian captivity, oh, it looks like everything is awash now. It's all gone. It's lost. Oh, actually, God took them out of the land for those 70 years, and it did truly wean them. It broke them, I should say, uh, from their idolatry into which they had so plunged themselves. Why all of that? And all the intricacies of providence throughout that whole Old Testament period. Not just with the uh, Jews, even, mind you, worldwide, but especially with it. 
Why all of that? Ah, it's the wisdom of God to bring the Messiah into this world through that people, preserving them as a religious people to that end. Well, let's get more personal. How did you come to hear about Jesus Christ? How did you come to be born where you were born? And then hear the gospel at whatever point you heard it. How did that happen? Well, it's the providence of God, yes, but think of the wise providence of God. In fact, even your ancestors, wherever they were from, however you came to be where you were when you heard the gospel, all of these intricate links in this wonderful chain, it was the providence of God that put you there. It was the providence of God that brought that gospel there. It was, you see what, what wisdom. What wisdom. Just in your life. Just in you, Christian. Okay, but multiply that by, well, without number. Every sinner saved. You understand why Paul would say, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out this is what paul is talking about that here's god's eternal purpose to display his manifold wisdom manifold indeed but now notice to whom this wisdom is especially displayed come again to verse 10 to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. The rulers, the dignitaries in the spiritual realm. This language was used in verse 21 of chapter 1 of angelic beings. So, you've got the angels. But this language, very same wording, is also used in chapter 6 and verse 12 of Satan and his hellish host. So the point is, my brother, my sister, this is what God does through salvation of sinners, those sinners that he saves. He makes his manifold, his multifaceted wisdom known to these spirit beings. That's what Paul's saying. Satan and his host... And those eyewitnesses who ever see and adore the glory of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. They declare the whole earth full of his glory. We're told elsewhere in scripture how angels have this uh, intense interest in the work of Christ in this salvation. Well, here's why. It's because God's manifold wisdom is displayed to these spirit beings, angels and demons as well in ways that they otherwise would not see it. Right? God's purpose. This is what we see in Ephesians 3 as God's eternal purpose. That these constant eyewitnesses of the glory of God would actually see more of his wisdom and his glory in this, the salvation of sinners. I've wondered, in fact, when... Uh, Isaiah 6, the angels are saying, uh, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full of his glory. Does that include then what they're seeing by way of, uh, look what God is doing in the salvation of sinners and this great eternal purpose. Well, great wisdom indeed. The purpose unfolds and they then see this, giving them new light and new reason to marvel. But now fourthly, God's wisdom is displayed not only in how he saves, but the emphasis in our text is it is seen also in and through those sinners he saves. It is made known by the church. That is, again, by sinners saved. By all that God does to or in those whom he saves, all the way to glory. That ongoing work, he began it, he's going to complete it. Uh, Their preservation, uh, the response of love to him, their growth and grace. Indeed, all things in their lives as individuals, well, it's all displaying that. But notice that Paul is not describing 
us simply as saved sinners individually, rather corporately, when he says the church were contemplated as such. Here's this eternal purpose, and it thinks of not simply you as an individual being for that manifold display of God's wisdom to spirit beings. It includes that, obviously. But this salvation, God's dealing, is with all of those whom he saves in Christ that are considered here corporately. Why does Paul do that? Why doesn't Paul simply say that now the manifold wisdom of God uh, should be made known by those sinners whom he saves, each individual? That's true, but what? Instead, he thinks of them all together as, quote, the church. It could be, I think this is probably it, because he is writing, after all, about the nature of the church, Jew and Gentile being joined together as joint heirs now uh, of that same promise. What has hitherto has been a mystery? Well, now then, here it is. It's made known even to the angels. But uh, perhaps also, uh, there's a sense in which God's wisdom God's glory is displayed even more when you think it was corporately. Uh, What goes on in each individual Christian whom he saves? Well, there is God's glory, God's wisdom displayed. Oh, but now multiply that uh, by infinity, as it were, and isn't it seen all the more glorious as you view them all together uh, as the church as a whole? Well, for whatever reason, Paul deliberately wrote of saved sinners in God's purpose corporately. It's by the church. Even as the church having that primary part in God's eternal plan. And therefore, the point that we're trying to demonstrate, the centrality of the church in the purpose of God. Are you familiar with the commentator William Hendrickson? He's now with the Lord, but a very capable uh, commentator. And to quote him uh, on this text, he says, The church is God's masterpiece in which his excellencies are mirrored forth. God's masterpiece. So you've got these principalities and powers in heavenly places, angelic beings and Satan and his host. And they see God's glories mirrored forth in this, his masterpiece. Now, as I already said, that clearly speaks of the church universal, all of those whom the Lord saves everywhere throughout time. That's true. But as I also said earlier, He's writing this to a local church, right? He's not simply saying, this is church universal has nothing to do with you folk, of course. No, he's writing to them as this is very pertinent to you. This is relevant to you as a church. You're familiar with the connection between the church universal, the church local, uh, how the church local is in very... Uh, uh, in a very real sense, a microcosm, a, a reproduction in miniature of the church universal, or it is to be the visible expression of the church universal. For instance, Scripture speaks of the church as God's temple, Ephesians 2 and elsewhere, and yet Paul writes to a specific church in Corinth and says, of Corinth of all places, that you are the temple of God. Or later in 1 Corinthians 12, Whereas here, Ephesians 1 and elsewhere, the church is described as the body of Christ. Paul says to that specific congregation, again, in Corinth of all places, you are the body of Christ. So the local church is the visible expression or the microcosm, reproduction in miniature, of the church universal. Or to put it another way, what the Lord does in the church universal, he does especially through the church local, through local assemblies, if I might demonstrate that. You familiar with Acts chapter 1? Sure, let's come there. Acts chapter 1. You know, Luke had written that which we know of as the gospel of Luke. I'm assuming that you just recently have completed your reading of Luke's gospel since you began with John in your consecutive reading today. Well, when we come to Acts, Luke now writes, same guy, Theophilus, whoever he was, And he says, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. So, what you just read by way of Luke's gospel, Luke himself said, that's what Jesus began to do and to teach. Okay, well, what does that make the book of Acts? That which Jesus continued to do and to teach. 
First was the beginning, here's the continuation of it, right? So, though we call it the Acts of the Apostles, we could say it's the Acts of our Lord Jesus Christ, especially through the Holy Spirit, etc. But, the point I want to underscore, how, how did Jesus do his work? I mean, we know his promise, uh, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Okay, but how did he do that? Just the church universal? Well, when you come to the book of Acts, what do you see? Well, right away in Acts 2, we've got a local church being established, the church in Jerusalem. And then after that, you see uh, uh, going throughout Judea and then Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. You've got places like Antioch. You've got places like Thessalonica. You've got local churches. Here's my point. What our Lord does in the church universal, he does in and through the church local, specific congregations. So that's what we, here's what Jesus began to do. Here's what he continued to do, establishing, building his church, even one church at a time, or we could say one sinner at a time being saved. But the point is simply this. When Paul writes of the church universal uh, to that body in Ephesus, he understood, I dare say they understood, this is pertinent. This speaks of us. We're part of that church universal. When Paul writes about, here's the eternal purpose of God, making his manifold wisdom known to angels and demons by his church. That includes you right there in Ephesus. And therefore, what he says has great relevance. In fact, he goes on to say, notice coming back to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Having developed this thought, he then says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. He's talking about God's glory in the church, verse 21 of chapter 3. Throughout all ages, eternal purpose, manifold wisdom being made known. And then he says, to all of those members of the church in Ephesus, now I beseech you, you walk worthy of this. This has real relevance to them as a local church. Mind you, uh, seeing the church and the purpose of God underscores that the church is not a parenthesis in God's dealing with the Jews, if you've ever heard that teaching, right? That, that the church was not an afterthought. No, it's actually right there in God's eternal purpose. But the point is, it was in recognizing this that Paul closes this section, verse 21 of chapter 3, saying, To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus all generations. And then he says to all of those believers in Ephesus, Now you walk worthy of this calling. This is your place as a church, as an individual, in God's eternal purpose. As part of that church, universal. This is you. You're to see this as you. That's the point here in Ephesians chapter 3. And so, dear brother, dear sister, I would say of you. This is you. This is your place in the eternal purpose of God. The centrality of you as a church in that plan. And so to aid us in living consistent with what is true of us, because that's what Paul is saying to the believers in Ephesus, this is what you are, now be what you are, live consistently with it. Well, so I would say to you, the same. And to aid that, three brief observations or applications for all in Christ's church, even every congregation of it. Firstly, this. Brethren, see the great dignity of what you're about. Such a lofty place and function in God's purpose. You know, God's work in creation is a wonderful display of his perfections, right? You're familiar with Psalm 19, about the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament, his handiwork, or Psalm 8, when I look and I see the moon, what you've made, what's man? It really does show forth God's glory. You've, on a, uh, a clear, cloudless night, I know you do get at least one or two of those a year in Portland and Washington, uh, but you see the stars and what it says of the glory of God. Impressive display of the glory of God, do you agree? Well, Job says, actually, that's just the edge of his, edges of his ways, but a mere whisper, but, but nonetheless it is. And then when you think of God's work in providence, when he's talking about pervasive providence, not even one bird falling to the ground outside your father's will, 
You think of God feeding all the animals. That's Psalm 104, Psalm 136. It speaks of this. What a display of God's glory in his providence. But in a very real sense, though creation is a marvelous and impressive display, and so too providence, in a very real sense, God's work of redemption seen in and through the church excels both of these as displays of his glory. God's manifold wisdom, or as Hendrickson put it, here's God's masterpiece, displaying his excellencies, not just his wisdom, but his grace and his justice and his mercy and his love and so much more. Displaying facets of his glory that even those attending angels ever in God's presence would not see apart from the church that whole work of grace. Well, what then an important place is given to his church? You. To be a marvel to angels and even to demons. To be a grand revelation of God's excellencies. That's that's you. That's what's been entrusted to you in the purpose of God. Well, then what dignity? Sinners, yet redeemed by such a Savior, with such a salvation. Well, do you have this lofty view of the church? Not just the church universal, but the church local as the expression of it. Is it your aim? Is it your aim together as a church to be that display of God's wisdom and God's glory, to see God revealed here, again, his wisdom and his glory in your brethren and in your whole life together. What dignity. And do you see and adore and worship God for what you see of him displayed in your life together as a church? Each of the members, but your life as a whole. Brethren, shouldn't we have a sense of privilege here? That we have been brought in, we've been given that place in God's eternal purpose, to mirror forth a masterpiece of his wisdom and of his grace? Well, let me encourage you. You know, meeting in a rented building, relatively limited number of people, especially considering how large the Portland area is, somebody might think, what's that all about? Let me tell you what it's all about. This is very part of God's eternal purpose. God displaying his manifold wisdom to demons and to angels through you, your life together, as part of Christ's church. What dignity, what privilege, what grace. Well, do you prize that? Do you prize, you yourself, prize being part of that? This should make that impression, but that leads to something else, another application. Therefore, what weighty responsibilities are on us and what we're about? To be this? To reflect the wisdom of this infinite God? It's no accident that Paul went on to write as he did in the rest of of this letter. I've already made reference to chapter 4. I therefore, verse 1, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. What's that all about? Here, God's glory in the church forever and ever. God's wisdom displayed to principalities and powers. Now then, you walk, walking worthy doesn't mean we somehow earn or we, the idea of being, walk consistent with that. Here's what is true of you. No. Live it out. Walk that way. And then he begins to open that up with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love. See what you are. Now live it out this way. He goes on to talk again, verse 3, about endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He goes on to speak in verse 7 about to each one grace is given. As he says elsewhere, that we should serve one another in Christ's church. He goes on also, verses 15 and 16 of the same section. He's giving instruction. Uh, verse 15, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ. 
from whom the whole body, joined knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working in which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. All of this is related to, here's what the church is. That great display of the wisdom of God. Now then, you walk worthy of that calling. You live consistently with it right there in your life together. Whether you think in terms of your love for one another, speaking God's truth to one another, building up one another, maintaining the unity of the Spirit in your life together. Brethren, all of this is your responsibility. We've seen the dignity. We've seen the privilege. You're mirroring mirroring forth as God's masterpiece, His great wisdom and power and grace and the like. Okay, then live like it in the nitty-gritty details. What he goes on to write about Husbands loving your wives, wives submitting, or uh, even parenting, or even the uh, slave-master relationship. All of that is to be seen in this same light. In your life together, right there, in your home, living this godly life by God's grace to the glory of God. So that the church is what it's supposed to be. Would you appreciate the centrality and the dignity of the church and God's purpose and do you do so in such a way that you feel the weight of your responsibility here's what the church is how right that I should then now do my part that I should live consistent with that brethren let me encourage you live in light of what you are consciously recognize what you're about here it's not just something you do on Sunday it's what you are as a church of Jesus Christ. Might God give you grace to walk worthy of that calling with which you've been called. And might his glory, his wisdom be displayed not just to human beings, but even to spirit beings, angels and demons. You can understand why Paul, in the midst of these words, having talked about God's eternal purpose, then goes on pray. Here's my prayer for you. If you're with that prayer at the end of Ephesians chapter 3, Ben, I understand you're going to be preaching through Ephesians 3. Yeah, good luck when you come to to Ephesians, and good luck when you come to chapter 3. Pastor Albert and Martin, he actually stopped preaching in Ephesians at the end of chapter 2 because he felt so uh, uh, incapable of dealing with that great prayer, uh, that, that we should know the love of Christ that passes knowledge, or that we should be filled with all the fullness of God. What does that even mean? Uh, brother, don't want to scare you off from preaching Ephesians, but, but there you go. But the point is, it's in light of what the church is, that eternal purpose, God's wisdom displayed, that he then goes into praying this large prayer. Well, brethren, that's instructive for us. And by the way, he's not asking too large because he closes it in verse 20 by saying, now to him who's able to exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think, even these things. So therefore, it should drive you as a church to pray and to ask large. But then a third application, and it's this. See then also the happy prospect of what you're about. This is God's purpose. This is God's purpose, which will not fail. This is God's work. And he is at work in his world through his church to bring this to pass. All that great work of redemption. And he will not be thwarted. Christ will build his church. Now, granted, that speaks of the church universal, and there's no promise of any one local church continuing to flourish without fail. You think of the church of Ephesus, and where is it today? But still, rather than looking, it's Christ who's doing the work building his church. It's God who has this as his unthwartable eternal purpose to display his multifaceted wisdom through the church. Well, what should you expect then? So when you're praying and you're asking large, you're praying for the salvation of sinners, you're praying for grace for your brothers and sisters in Christ with whom you're joined in local church life. What should you expect? But God to bless indeed. As you and your endeavors to be that masterpiece displaying the excellencies of God here, what should you expect? Yeah, well, I look at us, I look at me, and I look at, oh, wait a minute, but we're not talking about you. We're talking about Christ. We're talking about this infinite God. We're talking about his ability, his heart, a purpose that he's begun, 
and that he will continue and it will not fail. Well, brethren, let me encourage you then. Three applications from what we've seen. The dignity, the privilege that is yours. The weighty responsibility that is yours. Ah, but the happy anticipation of God's blessing being what you're supposed to be. Well, my God, indeed, it much, much honor for his name. And keep asking, keep praying to him who's able to exceedingly abundantly above all you ask or think. I close with this. If you're here without Christ, perhaps oh, this seems mumbo-jumbo to you. I mean, what's this all about? I have no idea what he's saying. Well, at least recognize this. We're talking about sinners, right? That's us. And we're talking about God dealing with sinners not as they deserve, but in what's called grace. Ill-deserved favor through Jesus Christ. That is, Christ came to rescue sinners, those who deserved only eternal punishment. And Christ suffered the just in place of the unjust that he might bring us to God. And now he ever lives to save to the uttermost all who come to God by him. And he holds out this glorious salvation to all kinds of sinners. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's rich to all who call upon him. He so saves sinners, not only forgives them, but changes them, makes them new creatures as to make them a marvel to the angels. That's the text. And so I would ask you this. Will you prefer your sin? Will you choose your eternal damnation to this, being a marvel to the angels? Will you prefer your sin and damnation to being made a new creature in Jesus Christ? All your sins forgiven, life everlasting. Why? Why would you do that? And does that not deserve, then, eternal judgment? Or if I might put it this way, will you be an eternal monument of God's justice in your damnation? Forever and ever, God's justice displayed in your eternal doom. Or will you be an unending monument of God's grace? Saving sinners through Jesus Christ. What's your future? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved. Or as he himself said, repent and believe the good news. He died to save sinners. He lives to save sinners. He saves all who put their trust in him. Go to Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do marvel indeed that you would deal with sinners like us in such grace sending your only begotten son into this world to redeem us to make us your own to rescue us from uh, what sin had done but not just that to make us your masterpiece displaying your excellencies even to spirit beings father grant that our sight should be elevated beyond just our routine, maybe our trials, things that we face day by day, but rather we would see the great dignity that you've given us and that we should feel the weight of our responsibility to live consistently, especially in life together with your people in local church life. And grant, too, that it would drive us to prayer. Ah, but it would drive us to pray with great confidence and happy, even eager expectation. Lord, please, Get honor for your name through your church, through this church, through these, your beloved people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.